This is this is the way they open Chicago Bulls games. And now, coming to you from high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's the Coot Street Podcast with Jonathan Strawn and Gary Wolf. Yay! Okay. Do I get a Hugo now? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Why not? Oh, well. So, how have you been? Ratchet, Gary. <laughs> That's how I've been. Problems. <laughs> I've been deaf. I've had, I've had sore teeth. You know, all kinds of stuff. But I'm looking up. It's 15 days to Christmas. It's the second day of Hanukkah, um, and I finished compiling my best of the year a couple of days ago. So I can see the light at the end of a few tunnels. I had had my first Christmas party the other day. How can I feel too unhappy? I'm glad. I'm feeling um, – what we do in academia, of course, is not too different from what you do. We end the semester. There, You've got deadlines. We have grades to turn, and I've done part of that. Uh, I went to see part of the Nutcracker today, which people in our field should remember is based on a classic E.T.A. Hoffman story, which is an important fantasy story, even though none of the kids know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, don't go to the Nutcracker with a six-year-old boy and a seven-year-old boy <laughs> who, are in, who are into kicking people in the next box. Um, <laughs> Sounds like you should have gone uh, to, you know, to, to a version of the Nutcracker with like Arnold Schwarzenegger in it or something. I think that's the thing to do. I think the only thing that these kids thought was interesting about it is that they discovered new ways to kick. <laughs> they were looking at people on stage and thinking, wow, I bet I could, I bet I could kick that high. <laughs> And so I've, I've, I've got a few things. What I do tend to do when I have a moment of letdown, and I don't quite have it yet. I, turn, I finished one group of, of, of uh, uh, grades today, and I've got day after tomorrow some more coming in. But I, I sit down and I watch. It's the only time I really, I, well, I don't sit down and watch them. I turn on the cheesiest movies possible. There are mm-hmm. lots of movies I want to see in the next few weeks. I mean, I want to see The Hobbit. Uh, I want to see Les Mis even. But what I do right now when it takes no brain at all is I turn on these bad sci-fi channel movies. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a great one coming on later tonight called The Twelve Disasters of Christmas or something. Mm-hmm. It's it's some it's a cross between The Twelve Days of Christmas and, and Mayan Doom Prophecies. So Fantastic. The, Mayan, the famous Mayan Christmas song, you know. That sounds like but, my, you know, my, my, um, my, my, my special seasonal anthology for next year. I think you should do that. I think you should do. I think you should do a series. I should do an anthology of stories based on Sci-Fi Channel movie concepts. Oh, that would go down well, and wouldn't see me in court for any time at all. <laughs> all their con- There's not an original concept anywhere. Um, I think. I, th- I think. Mark my words. Fifty years from now, people, the age of your kids and my grandkids, will be looking back on Paul Zimmer. The way we now look back on Jack Arnold. Who's Jack Arnold, Gary? <laughs> Jack Arnold was the great sort of mid fifties monster movie director, the creature from the black. Okay, okay. Yep. Yeah, I know the, the movies. Uh, but actually, that's doing a disservice to him because he was at least competent. Let's say Ed Wood, Paul Zimmer, who's somebody else, another name you don't recognize, yep. is the Ed Wood of, of today. Paul okay. Zimmer. They're, they're like a dozen. No, I thought that was that was Al, Al, Albert Pyun. Albert Pyun? Yeah. Who's that? He's an Eastern European director who's made like about 7,000 movies, all of which are terribly awful. There are four or five of these people that 
Paul Zimmer has done like three dozen Sci-Fi Channel movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's done the ones that are he's done the ones that are so dumb no one else will take them out. He's he's the one who did Stonehenge Apocalypse, in which the scientist explains to the journalist Stonehenge is not an automobile. Which it's a great <laughs> line. It just makes no sense whatsoever. I, I must admit, you did kind of like stopped me. But, but just to let you know, I mean, Albert Pyun, or Papayan, Pyan, I guess, right, has made right. movies with Rutger Hauer, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Christopher Lambert. He's made billions of movies. He is one of the worst directors ever to make movies. I'm surprised you haven't heard of him. Classics like Omega Doom and those sorts. Doll Man and okay, Road to Hell. Okay, here's the difference. Some of those actually got released in theaters. <laughs> Android, Android Apocalypse, another Paul Zimmer masterpiece, never made it out of uh, third run. I mean, some of the Sci-Fi Channel runs movies that the first time you see them are third run movies. They're so bad. I mean, they, they, they've, they've shown them privately around clubs in New York or something, so that by the time you see them, they're absolutely used up. But um, Snakehead Terror, the, the, the Philadelphia Experiment was his most recent one, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know who directed The Twelve Catastrophes of Christmas, but there's a point. There's an aesthetic to really bad special effects. I mean, yes, in an era in which uh, Peter Jackson was probably better at managing special effects than any other director, although I imagine Ang Lee is good with The Life of Pi can literally make anything look real on screen. There's a certain reverse aesthetic to special effects that look so completely tacky and cheesy that they're throwbacks to 50s. But hang on, uh, you, you don't find yourself sometimes watching a movie going, gee, I'd like it if they could just go back and clean up that special effect now? No, if, if, okay, if a movie has generally competent special effects yeah. with flaws in it, yeah. uh, that, that, that will bother me. I mean... This is something that's gone around for years, and you see all these things on moviemistakes.com about, you know, contrails appearing in the back of a Roman epic and that sort of thing. Those are editing mistakes, oversights, and so forth. When a movie has not one single special effect worth admiring at all, <laughs> then what, you, 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 you celebrate those moments. You celebrate the fact that, okay. well, that, you know, that, that, that avalanche of snow is clearly, uh, you know, a box of Q-tips being spilled or, or, or something like that. There's there's a there's an aesthetic to low budgetness. Okay. Is there an aesthetic to low budget science fiction books? Yes, I think there is. I think that um, well, by low budget science fiction books, it's kind of the reverse of what we talk about in movies. I mean, a low budget book frequently would be one of the best books of the year. Well, well, we have to be careful here because there's two different things. There's the artistic low budget, I guess, which is internally cheap, which is artistically cheap and tacky and simplistic, which is basically the bad book as opposed to, you know, anything else. And then I guess there's that kind of classic pulpy old science fiction look as well. And it's, I mean, and it does it does always occur to me that the the one great example of this being modernized and working in the you know these days is Bane books who who have mastered their own branding better than anybody else. Right. And it's very identifiable, and hmm, yeah. they're one of the few publishers whose covers you can identify across a room. Yes. Because it is a very distinctive look. I don't think they're deliberately. Uh, I don't think they're publishing what you would call down market. I think they know exactly. What oh yeah. Publishing. Yeah. What I thought you were They're not the Albert Pyun of, of science fiction, no, they're not. But anyway, yes, continue. Uh, there may be, I don't know, do, do we have any, um, I'm trying to think of 
people who are just run-of-the-mill science fiction, uh, dependable, bad writers, uh, which, which the field has had a lot of, I don't know if we have many like that. What I think we do have, I, I think there's an aesthetic of celebrating pulpishness in a way which is both ironic and not ironic at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me an example. I, this is not an example from fiction. It's an example from an essay. But Jonathan Leeson uh, published a short book, a novella-length essay on the movie They Live. Yes. Which is, uh, and it, you 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 read it thinking, okay, this is going to be a, a clever takedown of a of a bad but somewhat scary movie. And no, he really appreciates the movie. Uh, he, he, he appreciates it for what it's for. And I think that sometimes in stories like, um, oh, I don't know, Jonathan, uh, no, Michael Chabon's Gentleman of the Road, where he's going back really to 30s and 40s kind of pulp fiction and just writing a story, he's celebrating a kind of down market fiction. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of steampunk does this. Yeah. Hmm. I'm, 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 you can't know the name of the story, but it's a story that uh, was in Steampunk 3. It was Lobby Tidhar's story in Steampunk 3, which was one of these things which he's done in his novels, piling almost every name he could think to into it. And one of the writers that he mentioned um, was the German writer Karl May, who mm-hmm. was a German, the German Edgar Rice Burroughs, enormously popular in Europe back in uh, the early years of the century. And I was, I was impressed that he knew such a bad pulp writer who was translated not very successfully into English. He was even retranslated back in the 70s. But I'm sure that Karl May is there because however Lavi Tidar found out about him, he realized this is a pulp hero that we haven't acknowledged yet. Mm-hmm. Well, we're usually pretty good about lauding our pulp heroes, though. Uh, well, pulp heroes, I don't mean a pulp hero in terms of a character. I mean a pulp hero in terms of a writer. Yes, yeah. we're, we're pretty good about lauding them as well. We even lord Lionel Th- Fanthorpe, Gary. Well, yes, and we've uh, certainly given World Fantasy Awards to uh, Hugh B. Cave uh, and so forth. But that's more nostalgia. This is not nostalgia I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. This is an attempt, and it's a complicated attempt. It's an attempt to uh, engage with that kind of fiction, with Robert E. Howard kind of fiction. Robert E. Howard may be the litmus test on this. Um, acknowledging its failings but not treating it ironically, not treating it as parody. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that uh, uh, sword and sorcery writers today uh, try to engage with that, try, try to walk that fine line between tribute and parody uh, is, I think, a challenge for a good writer. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. Um, hmm. Interesting. Maybe you need to do a Library of America volume of bad pulp fiction. Um, that probably will happen eventually. But the question is, what is bad bad pulp fiction? We look down on pulp fiction because we have better markets now. We have better, you know, you can actually. Do I think that's true? Let me stop. I'm going to stop you right there. You're, uh, you're doing original anthologies, and you're not paying a half cent a word for them. Well, well, no, and uh, I think increasingly we, we actually finally have to start paying more money for fiction. I think uh, you would have seen that Asimov's have just inc- incru- increased their rates in the last mm-hmm. month, and that begins to push up the benchmark. I know Clark's World are paying, in fact, pay more than Asimov's do, uh, and Tor play, pay more than Clark's World does. I'm not sure, sh- well, I wonder what the new pulp fiction is, actually, because there, there, there's, okay, there are different things that correlate to pulp fiction 
there is, there is the classic period of pulp magazines and the kind of fiction that was published in it that was cheap and quick and whatever else. In amongst that, there's some very fine literature published as pulp fiction. Because obviously, I mean, people like Raymond Chandler were published as pulp fiction and yet managed oh, to transcend that. Right, Chandler, and, Hammond. Yeah, yeah. And if you go back through the history of science fiction and look back at the early days of, of magazines and everything else, uh, almost every major work of the 40s, say, had some connection directly to pulp magazines. I agree. So, you know, there is that. Um, is there an equivalent of pulp, pulp fiction today? Maybe. Not that I'm aware. I, I, I mean, pulp. I don't know. I mean, what would what would twenty first century pulp look like? Because uh, you can you can see. Okay, it, it it would be a digital online magazine, paying bottom bottom payment levels. No, do you know what's happened? How's this for an idea? Off the top of my head. Yeah. The ability to self publish and to publish online at no real cost has overwhelmed the existence of of any possible pulp fiction market. It's an interesting thought, with the with this exception, the uh-huh. pulp fiction market market was, if anything, probably more clearly targeted to its readership than even contemporary magazine and, uh, and and book markets are. In other words, if you were if you were reading weird tales, you knew a, this is what I think it's fascinating about the way people read the pulp magazines. From what I heard and uh, and from what I've read and from talking to people who actually were readers in that era, like Rusty Hevelin is that your loyalty, if you were a reader of Astounding, if you were a reader of Weird Tales, if you were a reader of Galaxy or FNSF, your loyalty was almost first to the magazine. You trusted the magazine to deliver the kinds of stories that you liked. And then if they delivered stories by a particular author that you admired, you would begin to look out for that author. But by and large, the, the magazine buyer was buying... The magazine was buying the editor's choices. Editor, that's why editors like Campbell were so hugely important. Yeah, They controlled what the readers saw. With the web, no one controls what the readers saw. Without the gatekeeper, you don't have any identifiable pulp tradition. Everything is the same. Well, that, see, there's another thing. I mean, and I, we're probably bouncing around. We risk recover, covering old ground again, as we always do. Uh, and, and if you want to stick to talking about pulp fiction, that's I'm happy to do so. But do you think in... 2012 there is the ability for there to be a meaningful gatekeeping role any longer um as a reader i think that there's a need for it whether there's a whether there's any possibility of it i don't know the sense i get when i look at um people's comments on the web about online fiction is that they don't know where to go online magazines serve the gatekeeper role I mean, basically, uh, if I'm going to read uh, one of 10,000 stories that's available for me to read on the web, I would prefer to read a story that somebody else has read and thought was worth putting on the web. Yeah. And that's that's a small version. It's a tiny version of of what an editor does. Sure. Uh, so if something is, you know, one of the things that happens, I know, with the Kindle, uh, original Kindle volumes, the Kindle singles, is that... Uh, they get rated, and the ones that get good ratings um, get more readers, sell more copies. Uh, so, so there's a kind of populous, popular, what's the word? Uh, popular, pop, populist, that's the word I'm looking for. There's a kind of populist rating system, which seems very powerful on Amazon, uh, except to the extent that it's being gamed by you know, writers 
writing. Well, well, I, I guess that I mean is it powerful because it reflects sales or readership, or because it attracts sales and readership? It attracts sales and readership. But my point is, what attracts that is that if I don't have an editor I trust telling me this is a good story, I'll look and see what other readers have said, and they can tell me it's a good story. Do you? I mean, I still, is that what you, Gary, the reader, does? I don't. What? You know, every time I saw one of those those uh, albums come out, you know, fifty thousand, El- you know, fifty million Elvis fans can't be wrong. I'd be going, mm-hmm. yeah, they can be. Oh, absolutely, and I, 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 but that's because I kind of know what I'm going to read anyway. I mean, when Fifty Shades of Grey sold quadrillions of copies before it was even published as a book, um, I knew from the beginning I wasn't going to want to read that, and the more popular it got, the less I wanted to read it. Um, when you start getting into areas as odd as um, the fantastic. And by the fantastic, I mean all the different yeah. subgenres, fantasy and science fiction, and so forth and so on. Um, let's say you're going to pick out a steampunk story out of all the ones on the web. You want to have some sense uh, that somebody has thought this story was worth reading. Yeah. Ideally, that would be somebody whose professional judgment you trust, i.e., an editor or a publisher. If not that, the second best thing is to see what other readers have said. And you can always tell, and this is one of the other things, one of the other pieces of advice I would give to these, there, there are lots and lots of them, people who are writing their own comments on Amazon. There are comments on Amazon or on other websites that will turn you off of reading something because the readers, you think, if, if this story is attracting readers that dumb, I don't want to read it. True. I guess I was thinking, if I was trying to, while well, you were saying that, if I was trying to game the attention system, you know, uh, where you're getting people to read you and everything else. Would I um, put my faith in Goodreads kind of a situation and then getting lots and lots of comments and all that? Or would I set up my own faux magazine to make it look as though someone had actually edited my stuff and all that kind of a thing and fake it? I think I'd probably take that route, actually. I'll try and... That's how I'll try and game your attention. I'd set up my own, you know, you know s- stunning wonder stories have it edited by Fritz von Werbervern, and then um, sell my stories to Fritz. Hmm. You just recreated a classic Richard Matheson story called Pattern for Survival. <laughs> From probably 1952. It, 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 it strikes me, this is, this is completely off-the-wall association. This is a story in which a pulp writer yeah. you know, finishes his manuscript, puts it in the mail, uh, and the the local post office guy picks it up and says, oh, there's another Hughes manuscript. It's going to be really good. And he delivers it. And the guy in the mailroom looks at him, wow, it's going to be another Hughes story. <laughs> and the editor pulls it out and says, this is great. I'm going to put this in type right now. And, then, <laughs> and, the, and the, the, the guy is back at home now, and he takes off the postman's uniform, and he takes off the editor, because he's the last man on earth. <laughs> he's, he's keeping himself alive by being a pulp writer and a postman and an editor. Now he's finally the most successful pulp writer ever <laughs> see that's that's the way you do it that's how you game the system and that's where oh, that, you know yeah a thousand tiny online science fiction magazines can come from exactly can be the editor and it's it also suggests that nuclear holocaust is not that much different from the internet i don't know what that means <laughs> I'm not sure it is. <laughs> no, I mean, you it is. Be, come on, no. You can just turn off you the internet and walk away from it. Well, okay, whatever happened to... Okay, as long as we're just wildly diverging off into... Whatever happened to Last Man on Earth stories? I was reading something the last in the last week about um, the famous Twilight Zone episode in which Bur- Burgess Meredith 
wants nothing but to read. And finally, he's the last man on Earth after the nuclear holocaust. Mm -hmm. And he has piles of books and all the time in the world to read them. And then he breaks his glasses. It's a, it's a story that makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't would not hold up for a second. It's one of the classic Twilight Zone episodes that everybody remembers. Um, and there is something in the nature of reading obsessively. People who really love to read that that episode echoes with, and the Richard Matheson story echoes sure. with. Many of us in an ideal world would like to read. Would like to have all the time to read the stories exactly the stories that we want to read. And we'd like to be able to write those stories, too. So in a, in a sense, um, that solipsistic universe that's portrayed by, uh, well, I guess Rod Sterling wrote the episode and, and by Richard Matheson, is a kind of fantasy universe for, for an um, obsessive reader. Yes. Yes, I can see that. Uh, I was going to say, what, what's happened to Last Man on Earth stories? Have we lost our fear of a nuclear apocalypse and the kind of apocalypse we now fear is, is such a, a slow apocalypse that it seems less emergent that there would be a situation where there would be a last person on Earth. I mean, the idea of a last person on Earth is pretty unlikely. It would be for a very vanishing period anyway. But... Um, well, I think what's happened with that uh, idea, and it was... That's, that's one of the science fiction ideas that goes back at least to Mary Shelley uh, mm. with The Last Man. Uh, and it, it had a long and noble tradition in science fiction, the purple cloud and so forth. Um, it, Like a lot of science fiction ideas, when they get left behind by science fiction, got picked up by horror fiction. There was a Last Man on Earth movie a, couple, a few years ago, and it was the latest version of I Am Legend. Yeah. Which is a Richard Matheson. Uh, and Matheson, I think, is a key figure where, where certain science fiction ideas that get abandoned by science fiction get picked up by horror fiction. Mm -hmm. So a last man on Earth scenario is fine as long as you're talking about zombies and vampires. But I think you're right. It doesn't work with nuclear war anymore because we don't realistically fear uh, that sort of situation. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, this, this touches on something else you've been talking about for the last while. It would fit neatly uh, into a concept anthology about dead science fiction ideas. You've been kind well, of interested in this lately. I'm, I'm fascinated with it because uh, it occurred to me, as I mentioned, I think, last week, I was reading Karen Lord's novel, which has a lot of psi powers in it, uh, the, a bit of telepathy. And I was thinking, okay, that kind of went away from science fiction, and thanks mostly. If you look at the number of Stephen King novels that have various psychic powers in them, I mean, telepathy and The Shining, and there's Firestarter, and there's mm -hmm. um, Carrie, uh, telekinesis. I mean, all, all the old science fiction psi... Uh, psionic tropes from the 50s are now pretty much owned by Stephen King and people like that. Um, time travel, uh, you'll still see an occasional time travel story, but it's uh, more often, if you're going to see a major use of time travel in fiction, it'll be a novel which is either completely or almost mainstream. It'll be an mm -hmm. Audrey Niffren novel, or it'll be Connie Willis's World War II novels, um, the sort of thing that, again, is... Uh, Octavia Butler's Kindred. Uh, the time travel is just a narrative device. As a science fictional idea, it's used up. There's scientifically, it doesn't really make much sense. Yeah. And so, so what I what I think happens to these ideas is that they don't go away. They get picked up by other genres. In other words, mm -hmm. people start thinking about time travel. Well, actually, if you read the his description of time travel in the time machine, his rationale for it 
almost makes sense. Well, there are three dimensions. We live in a fourth dimension of time. When we can travel in all three of these dimensions, why couldn't we travel in that fourth dimension? And it yep. seems philosophically logical. Kids well, now logic. we know. Yeah. But what really lay behind Rawls's idea was not the me mechanics of time travel. It was the idea, wouldn't it be cool if we could go to the future or go to the past? Um, and that idea is there. I mean, that idea sort of came into science fiction for a while, and now I think it's moved out and it's become just another literary trope. I think time travel is something the mainstream writer can pretty much do now. Well, well, that and uh, multiple universes, alternate worlds, those sorts of things, I think, more and more. I think as, perhaps as, particularly science fiction film, popularizes an idea, it becomes, you know, broadly enough uh, adopted into the culture that um, people will stop thinking about it in science fictional terms, and they think about it purely in... Um, metaphorical, literary, artistic terms, those sorts of concepts. That's, that's exactly my point. I agree. I think that what happens is that the idea, the idea never goes away. Um, it becomes a part of fantasy. It becomes a part of the mainstream. It becomes transformed into something else. Back in the 50s, again, and I know I've been thinking a lot about the 40s and 50s, but the mm -hmm. 50s is a key decade because you do have the post-war era and the fear of nuclear doom hanging over you. And there were a, a and I have a fondness for tacky 50s movies, and there were a number of movies about mutants. Yep. And there were, also, there were a number of stories about mutants, and the mutants could either be uh, sort of brilliant supermen like in Wilmer Shiraz's mm -hmm. Children of the an unjustly forgotten book, or more often in movies they would be sort of mindless predators that are really indistinguishable. 1950s science fiction movie mutants are almost indistinguishable from the zombies in the Walking Dead. Sure. They were just there to be eating machines. So now we realize that that idea of mutation, the idea that somehow an atomic bomb would go off and three weeks later there would be ravening, bloodthirsty hordes coming at your door, uh, was never going to work out. That's not the way radiation works and so forth and so on. But we loved that idea. So what we did was just took that idea and shifted over into the zombie mythology, which, if you'll recall, back in the 40s and 50s, zombies were not at all a ravenous or threatening. No. Actually, the metaphors of slow. Well, actually, we've had to reconsider what kind of things mutation can do in fiction in other areas as well, because if you think about it, the entire modern, well, not the, no, not the modern, the entire, certainly, certainly Japanese, particularly monster movie kind of thing, comes out of uh, nuclear mm. mutation. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the giant bug movies, them, uh, things like you know, Godzilla, obviously, all sorts of you know stuff like that comes out of exactly exactly that this idea that you know exposed to to you know atomic radiation sort of some some enormous you know vengeful lizard you know, comes forth and stomp cities right because we're we're hurting mother nature um, but not a plausible idea anymore and unlikely it's, to become again well it's not a plausible idea science fictionally but this is my point is that mm. science fiction and fantasy and literature no longer needs to draw on plausible ideas. That became a trope. I mean, decades after um, uh, the Them movies like Them, and actually the giant, the giant insect stories, as I recall, probably were uh, they were common back in pulp magazines of the 20s and early 30s. Uh, there were giant wasps on Venus, and there were, uh, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember the story. There was a Ray Cummings story, but but as recently as the 1970s, and probably more recently than that. You have 
a classic story, Ed Bryant's Giants or Giants, um, which is clearly a homage to, to that kind of thing. In other words, science fiction may come up with a really dumb idea, which is also really cool, and when you realize it's not viable as a science fiction idea anymore, you still want to hold on to it and be able to use it because now, as you say, it's become a literary thing. <laughs> Look, there, I got anthology. Uh, I'm, I'm plugging a book which I've not even looked at yet. It's a new Tachyon anthology called The Apes of Wrath. Really? Okay. Big Simeon stories. It's, 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 basically, it's basically science fiction and fantasy stories about apes, chimpanzees, orangutans. It's got yep. the murder more it. it's got Rachel in love it's got a lot of stories and that sort of thing and look at the intelligent ape as a kind of uh, trope in science fiction it's not something we're really working on creating but uh, they've been around for over a hundred years and people love that idea of um, dumb animals becoming intelligent I guess or animals that look like us beginning to act like us Rise of the Planet of the Apes which I only saw a few weeks ago, was not a bad movie. Yeah, yeah. It actually science fictionized um, the idea much better than the original Pierre Boulle novel did. Well, actually, I read that. I read the original Pierre, Pierre Boulle novel, Monkey Planet. I did, too. It was actually a bestseller before the movie was even made. Yeah. I'm trying to decide what, what I think about, about some of what you're saying about the whole approach to sort of the intelligent apes and everything else, because, of course... It does go back to Tarzan and all that kind of thing. I don't know how, how much it precedes it. Oh, look, Kafka. Kafka wrote a... Kafka had an intelligent ape story. Goodness. The Murders in the Rue Morgue has an orangutan in it, which seems to behave in a very intelligent, de deducing manner. Yeah. Um, huh. There's, a, there's an edge to those figures like that, and I, yeah. think, that's something that's, I think that's something which is literarily fascinating more than science fictionally fascinating. What I'm trying to make a distinction here between ideas that are science fictionally plausible in the old hard science fiction definition and the ideas that are just too cool to let go. Yeah. And apes are classic images of oh you want to you want a lit crit term? They're classic liminal images. <laughs> liminal look, images, Gary. Now you're getting fancy on me. Now I'm getting fancy. I'm a humble I'm a humble sort of, you know, under, I mean, like, I got a bachelor degree, and that's all, Gary. You can't use words like liminal with me. Well, I think you should. Oh, I thought you were editing liminal stories quarterly now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I don't have to know what it means for that. On the edge. It means in the, uh, occupying a, an area in between. Apes are like us, and yet they are distinctly not like us. Chimpanzees, all these things that sort of physically have certain behavioral and, um, and physical characteristics are in that area where, well, they're completely alien and they're completely not alien at the same time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We don't feel the same affinity for, let's say, salamanders that we do for chimpanzees. There's That's really true, yep, yep. Uh, it's one of the reasons why, even now, even today, even in current fiction, yep. we have stories about humanoid robots. Yep. And, in fact, we've, you know, we've advanced, the robotics industry has been advancing for a half century now, and they're not humanoid by and large. No, and nor are they likely to be. Robots out there. But the humanoid robot is like an ape. It's like us, and it's not like us. But it has the whole unca uncanny valley thing happening. That's the problem with humanoid robots, which is slightly different. Um, you know what I do always find an interesting uh, 
path of conversation in, in this sort of area. And that's the Steve Baxter situation where he's spoken about our concept of the alien deriving from times when uh, Homo sapiens may have coexisted with earlier, you know, with, with Australopithecines and, uh-huh. you know, that kind of thing. And, th- and th- that's where we get sort of these ideas for the alien, the other, the fact that once upon a time we actually did, we have these, me- you know, these almost racial memories of, of existing with others. Um, I, it, it's a fascinating idea, and it's an idea that I think Carl Sagan even played with a little bit in The Dragons of Eden. Um, and I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I think there is certainly something to be said with more recent research indicating that there was probably more of an overlap among Cro-Magnons and, uh, and, and Homo sapiens than people suspected. And I'm, yeah. if I'm wrong, I'm sure we'll be corrected on that, but... Uh, another book which I have in my hands and I have not again opened, and could be very interesting is Ted uh, Kosmata's *Prophet of Bones*. Ah, yes. Which deals with I assume it's related to his story that dealt with the quote-unquote hobbits that were discovered in I believe Malaysia. I would think uh, so too. It's of, of the same title, isn't it? Uh, is that the same title? I I think off the top of my head, with that sort of sneakily googling in the background, Gary. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. Well, that was a fascinating story. That was one of his best stories, I thought. Yep. Uh, and part of one of the reasons is because it directly addressed the question of what is like us and what is not like us, and how do we tell the difference? Mm-hmm. Which is a profoundly science fictional question. Mm-hmm. Since we're rambling, this is one of our, our more rambling kind of an episodes, Gary. Oh. After what I thought was quite a focused effort last week, we're now sort of lost, but we're halfway through, so we might as well keep going. Uh-huh. Well, uh, we're talking about ideas. We are. We're talking about ideas. Um, there's one that we've sort of held in reserve, I guess, a little bit, and that is, given that you have edited what I've described as the ultimate science fiction gift for geeks for for this year, as we sit here on the cusp of the holiday season, or in fact, the beginnings of the holiday season, really, not even the cusp. I think we're into the holiday season now. Um, in your science fiction novels of the 50s set for Library of America. Should the world turn and allow you to do it, what are your thoughts on doing a set of volumes for the 60s? I mean, the 60s are quite a different time to the 50s. Uh, the range of classic novels are broad, really, that you, you can pick really? from. Really, yeah. And, you know, I suspect that the kind of criticisms that you will get will be quite different because there are books which arguably you should include that you almost certainly won't be able to. And that always undermines that, that kind of project or the appearance of that project. It becomes a problem when you start thinking about the realities of putting together a book or two books and you're trying to get eight or nine novels in them. One of the advantages we had in the 1950s was, there were two advantages really. One was that the paperback industry was a large chunk of the book publishing industry. Secondly, the novels were simply shorter then. Uh, sure. The paperback industry, you know, by and large, if you were writing for Signet or Ballantyne or Avon, you were going to have a manuscript that fit into a 160 or 192-page paperback. Sure. Um, and we were able to get, frankly, one of the reasons we were able to get the big time in uh, was because it was short enough that we could get another novel into that volume. Yeah. Uh, and you get in the 60s, you start running into problems. You start running into four and 500-page novels. Um, and how many can you legitimately squeeze into uh, a book that size. I've thought about it a lot. One of the things, as I've said before, that bothered me in the 50s was that there wasn't enough 
work by women to choose from. And in the 60s, you do get, you don't get um, the female man, but you do get Picnic on Paradise. You do get the early Rust novels. You do get the Left Hand of Darkness. Um, you get things like the Einstein Intersection, I guess. Um, you get Nova. But then you have Iconical for Leibowitz, which actually, I think, as a book came out in 1960. And that's getting up there to where you can't get five or six of those into one volume. Well, that's it. I mean, a couple of the most famous books of the period, as I recall, would be, say, something... Well, in fact, the most famous book of the period would be June. Was June 1969? Was it that early? Uh, I think it was earlier than 1969, Gary. Certainly, its short fiction was in, like, 63, it's- maybe? And the novel itself came out in, like, 60 eight maybe yeah okay that could be right and given that it has won more well it's been you know identified as the greatest science fiction novel of all time a bunch of times by locust poles and other places like that and given that it's been made into movies and tv series you would think it would be just about your first stopping point and yet it's i haven't held a copy in my hand for a while but it's got to be 500 pages long it's half of one of these volumes yeah um, and, 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 and therein lies the problem, the, the, part of the problem. I mean, the Library of America has addressed this issue before, but they've addressed this issue when they were doing essentially complete editions. They addressed this issue, for example, with Henry James. Yeah. Um, but that was Henry James, and they were going to do basically all, all of Henry James. They're not going to do all of Frank Herbert, and frankly, they shouldn't. No. Well, oh, no, 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 they should not. There's a lot of uh, mediocre Frank Herbert out there in the world, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> And, of course, one thing which uh, I guess would have to be clear is this is, of course, the Library of America, not the Library of Science Fiction. So it will be sci- uh, American science fiction. Well, one of the things that interests me about putting together stuff for a general audience. Now, obviously, the, we, we want every science fiction reader or every previous science fiction reader who hasn't looked at it in years to love these volumes and give them to each other for Christmas. But there's also this thing in the back of your mind that some of the people reading these volumes are going to be people who are not habitual science fiction readers. Sure. Um, and I have no trouble with um, The Stars My Destination or Case of Conscience and so forth. I have no trouble with things like, uh, probably like Dune, because Dune yeah. has some of the appeal of epic fantasy. But there are certainly classic novels that are classics for science fiction readers that might not be classics for non-science fiction readers, uh, one of the things one of the things that's omitted from um, the '50s volume and would be likely omitted from the '60s volume is Hal Clement, uh, because Hal Clement was great at coming up with imaginary environments and imaginary creatures and working out the physics yep. and doing all the science fiction geeky things that we love him to do, but he wasn't really writing very interesting stories within those contexts. So somebody and there was. That might be the kind of writer who would not convert somebody to science fiction who wasn't already converted to it. And I guess that's that's part of the task of these books. It's part of the task of these books, and the irony is that in the 60s, it becomes easier to find those books than it was in the 50s. I mean, Le Guin is very accessible to everybody. Sure. The, the early Delaney, at least, is very accessible to everybody. Um, the early Russ, well, actually, most of Russ is. And certainly Dune is, and certainly actually Stranger in a Strange Land is. But if you had Dune and Stranger in a Strange Land, there's one one of your two volumes gone already. And that doesn't allow for Stand on Zanzibar. 
well, which is not going to be in a Library of America volume, fortunately. No, it's not, fortunately. But actually, there's a question, I mean, and it's a, a tricky one, well, it's a semi-irrelevant one because it's argued elsewhere, but what yeah. Heinland from the 60s would you include? I mean, I have to allow that I haven't reread much of the Heinlein of the 60s lately, but I did try to reread Glory Road, which I wouldn't include a few years ago and wasn't that impressed, so. I guess Moon's is is Harsh Mistress is the 60s, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And is one, stands amongst his best books. Yeah, that's probably the one I would think of. Um, I, what, the other thing, I, I have been thinking about other things to do in the Library of America. Going toward the 60s would be one direction to go in, obviously. I mean, I think I would put something by Zelazny in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's somebody who's... Uh, I think he's on the cusp of being rediscovered, but we talked about him a little bit in terms of Amber, but he's, you know, the the, the early science, this, this immortal and Lord of Light and stuff like this. Yeah, Lord of Light would be a possibility. It is interesting, actually, as I look over my shoulder in my here in my office, somewhere over there, right, over mm-hmm. there, uh, is the six-volume uh, Nesfa set of, the, you know, the collected short fiction. And yet uh-huh. they didn't seem to quite result in his work being widely reassessed, which sometimes those projects do. I don't know if Nesfa's volumes do that. Nesfa's volumes, as far as I can tell, never make it outside the science fiction community. Oh, I think they've played that role within the science fiction community, though, Gary. I mean, I think you can see it with most notably, most famously, the um, Cordwainer Smith. Cordwainer Smith volume, I think you're right about that. Um, But in terms of generating a wider audience, the test case, I think, for generating a wider audience for for a stone genre science fiction reader from that period, writer from that period, would be uh, the um, New York uh, New York Review of Books published a collection of Sheckley stories uh, edited yes. by Jonathan Lethem and I'm blanking on who else. Uh, Someone else? Uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was co-edited. And uh, it was in a very literary series of sort of uh, underground classics that the New York yep. Review of Books promote. And uh, I don't know how it's done. I don't know what kind of reception it's got. I don't know whether it got any reviews that we do. That's it. What's the title of it? Stories. Store, Store of the Worlds, the stories of Robert Sheckley, edited by Alex Ab- Abramovich and Jonathan Lethem. Right. We, we should probably just say something as an aside here, Gary, because it's, it's a newish feature of our podcasting practice. Uh, I mean, obviously, to, to pre- save against disaster, you are back up recording this. But to add a certain ambiance, we're actually FaceTiming one another in the background whilst we're actually recording. So we, unusually, for... for, for 120 out of these podcasts, we can actually see each other while we're recording. No, and I, I, that, that, by the way, dear listeners, is why when Jonathan a few minutes ago was saying back there, he was actually gesturing towards something which made no sense to you whatsoever, <laughs> as a listener, but I could see the image of him gesturing toward a bookcase. Yes. And see, I actually was holding up my copy of the book to Gary so he could see it, you see. And so, and so anyway, enough of that. That's irrelevant. I should cut this bit out, but I won't because I don't edit it that closely. But Well, here's anyway. a question, though. Sheckley is an interesting example of this. And uh, last year, I mean, some people ask why uh, Asimov's Foundation trilogy wasn't in my book. Well, it's because it's really a collection of novellas from the 1940s. But there's a beautiful edition that I think Every Man's Library did of, uh, of the Asimov Foundation series with an introduction by Michael Durda. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are these breakout books, and one of the questions that I think is fascinating, uh, obviously Jonathan Lethem chose Robert Sheckley. If you were to choose a writer from the 50s, 60s, or 70s who is not widely known outside the science fiction field and put together a collection for general readers, that is 
collection that you're going to send off to the New York Times to get reviewed, which writer would you choose? Oh, Lord. Off to the New York Times. Avram. Avram Davidson, maybe. That's a good choice. That's a very good choice. Um, because Avram Davidson has the kind of profile that just smacks of rediscovered literary masters that nobody knew about. His fiction was virtually invisible outside of the field um, at the time, it seems to me. Yes. There were a couple of posthumous books. Um, and and yet, I don't know if he's being read widely today or at all. And, and another, another related figure mm-hmm. to that, Eileen Gunn should tell us about Avram sometime and find out what kind of... I'd love that. We should get her on the, on the podcast to talk about Avram because she knows a lot about him. She was going to write a... Or she did start writing a biography, didn't she? Yeah, she's working with a book with, um, uh, with his, his widow. Um, I'm blanking on her name now. Grania Davis. Uh, yes, Grania. Um, but yeah, Davidson... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Avram Davidson and Lafferty is the other probably parallel name which you and I are familiar with through the Locust Foundation. I'd be more reluctant about Lafferty. Truthfully. Really? I've got a lot of passion for, for some of Lafferty's work, but I think that Davidson is a more inherently accessible writer and a better line-by-line writer than uh, Lafferty was. And Lafferty would occasionally get, no, would often get lost in his own eccentric, paranoid poetry uh, of his prose. And I think that would lose a lot of people. I think uh, I think 900 Grandmothers as a collection is fantastic. I don't know whether the world at large would respond to it because it's a little bit too idiosyncratic. It's very quirky, you're right. And and it's not identifiably... I mean, it certainly is connected with uh, various arcane kinds of Catholic mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, uh, Davidson's work sometimes uh, draws on Jewish mythology in the, sa- in the same way, but he does so in a tradition that almost could be... Uh, in, in, in some ways, could be compared to um, Shalom Aleichem or, or, or some of the you know, great Jewish writers yeah. of the 20th century. He was very much, I think, consciously part of that tradition. And, and th- frankly, that's simply a more recognizable tradition to most re- readers these days. I think it probably is, yeah. So, I mean, I, I could see Avram. I'd be more surprised at Lafferty. If classic science fiction writers... Because well, one of the... Pro- sorry, yeah. Not well, even no, necessarily... No, you go ahead. I was going to say, the, the key is staying away from people who wrote gadget stories. That's the first thing. Because gadget stories just read as dated stuff and nobody likes them. Um, I think that's true. I think they were minor entertainments. The gadget stories... I mean, I was reading... I, I was, I'm not old enough to read the pulp magazines. I used to enjoy gadget stories in Astounding and Analog. Almost like crossword puzzles. Mm-hmm. Not that they were these stories, the stories you'd read through and think, oh, that was clever, and you'd never go back and read it again. And I don't, by and large, those stories don't bear rereading, I don't think. Um, as a matter of fact, to some extent, there's a, there's a thing that happens to certain kinds of stories where they become parodies of themselves, and to some extent, people like, um, oh, Arthur Clarke and Spider Robinson wrote enough parodies of gadget stories that it's hard even to take them seriously anymore. Tales from the White Heart is largely a parody of earlier gadget stories. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, you're looking for people who can write, people who can write accessibly. Um, I think uh, uh, Keith Roberts would be a possibility. Jack Vance would be a possibility. Um, Jack Vance would be difficult, but... 
I mean, and, and I'm aware that I'm talking solely at this moment, sort of white men. But I'm just looking at that pe- in that period. And that, that that means that I'm overlooking somebody I should be thinking of. Uh, and when I think, I mean, Kate Wilhelm, for crying out loud. I mean, I know she's popular, but her work is not as popular as it once was. And no, she wrote through a chunk of that period. She does have a separate following among mystery readers. I she does. She does. Uh, but I don't know how widely she's read in science fiction right now. I mean, she obviously still appears from time to time. She still writes stories that appear in FNSF. But... Uh, she would be someone I would consider. I think the fact that we don't have a, a really good Best of Wilhelm volume is a, a great um, disappointment. I think we really should have. You know, another writer whose short fiction I think is completely overlooked because her because she's written some major novels is Susie McKee Charnas. Um, Boobs. Boobs is a classic story. I got um, to say it once for once in the podcast, and it's okay. Okay, yes. You just wanted to say boobs. I'm trying to talk about literary quality, and you want to just. Okay, but I mean, there, there's, there's. I can honestly say boobs had never crossed my mind during this podcast until you mentioned Susie McKee Charnas. Well, okay, but the thing is that Susie has a she'd written what she'd written four novels in what uh, ought to be one of the feminist classics yep. of science fiction, and there was yep. a problem with the fourth volume coming out years later, and so forth and so on. But the Walk to the End of the World series, yeah, certainly the Vampire uh, Tapestry is is still. Even after all the vampire stuff we have, it's still one of the most tough-minded vampire uh, stories I know, um, in, in, in which there's absolutely de-romanticized um, vampire who's, who's clearly nothing but a predator. There's nothing romantic about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's just horrible and scheming, and he views us as nothing but food. Um, so, so that's where her reputation lies, but there's a fair amount of short fiction out there, and Boobs and, uh, and Beauty and the Opera are two examples of it, yep. that by and large, I think, have gone under the radar. Does she have a large enough body of fiction to put together the kind of book you're talking about, though? I don't really know, to be honest. Uh, there's a fair amount of short fiction out there. And I don't know, has Susie even done a collection? I, she's done four, Gary. Really? I know she's done at least one because she did one with with Tachyon, stage struck vampires and other phantasms. Okay, yeah, that one. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's and see, actually, it's funny. I totally pre- pl- uh, pl- pre- uh, plead guilty to the fact that until I get a memory prompt, I for, I, I don't rem- you know sort of touch on everything I should. But she's written at least three classic short stories. Okay. In the Unicorn Tapestry. Right. Boobs. Which I didn't just say to say it again. It did win a Hugo Award, and Beauty and the Opera or the Phantom Beast, right? All of which are terrific stories. And I would imagine that she does have enough short fiction for for a a, a strong uh, collection. How many stories has she got? She got about t- fifteen stories across her career. Is that all? Yep. You're looking at ISFDB. I am. Damn your black heart for dubbing me in. Uh, and she had one one new story out last year in Teeth, and that's for she only had like four stories in the last fifteen years. Yeah. Um, and not that many more novels either. I don't think she's published a novel since, in fact, since nineteen ninety nine. I don't think she's published a new novel. Just Is that about. Dreams. No, I think the last novel under her own name was actually uh, a, a thing called The Slave and the Free, maybe. And then she wrote, oh, and The Strange Seas was under her name. But she's written not much under her own name at all. Mm. Which is unfortunate, because she's a, very, she's a very fine writer. 
She's <coughs> excuse me, an excellent writer, and I wonder if I wonder if some of the uh, attention that got paid to her vampire uh, stories overshadowed her reputation as a science fiction writer. Um, and I also wondered what happened to some extent what happened to the Walk to the End of the World Quartet. And I think part of that was timing. Part of that was um, there. There, there are some feminist classics of science fiction mm. that don't seem to be widely read these days. The early Sherry—I don't know if the early Sherry Tepper is being read as widely as she once was. Oh, I think you'd be surprised because they—they they did that thing where they—they they packaged all her short novels up into like nice fat omnibuses, and that seemed to extend their lifespan considerably. My recollection, though, is with the Holdfast Chronicles for Charnas, which is what you're talking about. The first two books got a great deal of attention in the 70s, and when she returned to them 15 or more years later, they didn't get quite the same response. So, Walk to, um, the, so got Walk to the End of the World, Mother Lions, The Furies, and The Conqueror's Child. Yeah, and Conqueror's Child was was the last one, and I think um, Susie is a very tough, tough-minded writer. She's a very unsentimental, unsentimental writer. And I think there were uh, there's a term which uh, is, is now practically part of the daily parlance called critical fiction, fiction which is critical of its own assumptions by and large. And uh, The Conqueror's Child was very much that. The yeah. Conqueror's Child interrogated, that's another lit crit term, interrogated the earlier volumes in that series in something of the same way that, but in almost the reverse, in something of the same way that... Uh, uh, Tahanu interrogated the earlier Earthsea novels. In other words, yep. she was rethinking it, and she was thinking this is a more complex situation and a more um, multivalent situation. In other words, things the things that seemed to be satisfactory endings in the first two volumes were shown not to be satisfactory endings in the last two volumes. And I think that actually may have challenged some people's appreciation of the first two novels. Yeah. Um, we should actually get Susie to talk about this rather than have me try to represent her thoughts. That, that, that's, that's perfect, like a perfect idea. Yeah. But, but but we're having no luck getting guests on at the moment, Gary. They don't like us anymore. No, we should let people know we have been trying, and we've got we've got all sorts of people agreed to be guests. They've cheerfully agreed to be guests, and then uh, I don't know. They're washing their socks that night. <laughs> they're probably going out and talking to actual people, Gary. Yeah, they could be talking to actual humans. Oh, uh, well, you know, we're not that interesting. It's okay. Um, I had uh, just a footnote to Susie Charnas. My yes. stepson had a did a production in New York of the Vampire uh, Tapestry. Uh, the Vampire, I think that was the title of the... Yes, uh, the Vampire Trap Tapestry, yeah. The title of the play is what I'm trying to think of. Okay. Um, and and um, there were some problems with one of the actors. That's a side story. But the general audience, which is a general mainstream audience identified with the story very well. In other words, uh, the point we started out this whole discussion was which writers would you sell to a general non-science fiction audience? And Susie, I mean, certainly the Vampire Chronicles, but I think Boobs would be the same kind of thing. I think most of Russ would be that way. But my point is, to, to use an extreme other example, is that if I have somebody, and I'm thinking of family members, and they want to know what I do with science fiction, and would they enjoy it, I am not going to give them a Greg Egan novel. No, no. I'd, I would be cautious about doing that. I'm probably not even going to give them a Hal Clement novel, and I'd think twice about um, giving them 
a Larry Niven novel. I'll give them a Ted Chang collection. Or, well, a Ted Chang collection is an interesting question. Uh, which is, I hope the Ted Chang collection comes up high, somewhere high on the list of the locus, uh, you know, best of the century things. Ted Chang, I would give to literary people. I would give to science fiction people. I don't know about the general reader. My uh, mom, th- my mom, who's seventy-five now, uh-huh. and whose favorite writer used to be Maeve Binchy, and who loves big Ken Follett fat historicals, will read my books every now and again. Uh-huh. And she read the uh, best of the year that opened with *The Merchant and the Alchemist Gate*, which she loved. It's one of her favorite stories ever. Really? Yeah. That's interesting because that is another example of a time travel motif which is used to construct a very interesting and complex story, but essentially she can read it as a historical story. Yes, I think... And time travel didn't prob- didn't bother her at all? No, nope, not at all. But I, I mean, as you've said quite rightly way back earlier when we were rambling elsewhere, um, time travel is no longer a concept which befuddles people. No. You know, generally speaking. Uh, just as, as, as I said, multi, multiple universes and a lot of these kind of things, uh, they're now part of the common fabric of culture. The, you know, the idea, the concept. You may not read a gnarly Greg Egan examination of them. You might not be read, you know, wanting to follow up on what Hanu Ryan Yemi has to say about it. But the basic concept of multiple universes or time travel or whatever else, absolutely. Would buy his bootstraps startle anybody in 2012? No. I've actually taught by his bootstraps. No, I'm sorry. Not by his bootstraps. I don't know. I was thinking of all you zombies. Yeah. And I've taught all you zombies, which is has been described as the ultimate time travel story, meaning in terms of doing... You know, there's one character in the entire story. And the students, by and large, didn't like it until I diagrammed it on the blackboard for them. And then they thought it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> so I don't know. Does that mean they're responding to the fiction or just responding to a very, very clever puzzle? I don't know. But it'll be a question for another time. Probably. I think Universe, of Heinlein's early stories, Yeah. I think Universe would work because it's had so many echoes all the way down through um, things like even Battlestar Galactica. The idea... That you know you're in a universe which is you discover to be limited, you discover mm-hmm. to be a spaceship. That I think probably could be read by almost anybody today, whether they're familiar with science fiction or not, and they would think it's a really cool idea because it's about a kid defying his elders and discovering that the universe is much much bigger than they thought it was. Uh, so I, I think that would kind of work. I don't know. I, I think. The other thing that's odd about Heinlein is I think the writing tends to stand up. I think the prose can stand up, whereas it doesn't with other writers like Asimov. Yeah, but see, this is one of those things. I mean, when was the last time we went back and reread Asimov to check? I read a lot of Asimov. No, no, I mean, I mean I in the last sure. 20 years? Well, I mean, when I was looking, I was looking through things for uh, the library. Of course you did. Of course you did. Yes. And, uh, and the end of eternity could easily have been in that volume. I won't deny that. Uh, but by and large, Asimov boasted that he wrote transparent prose, tr- prose that didn't call attention to itself, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Sometimes transparent prose means really flat prose.
pros. Yeah. Sometimes if the idea is stimulating enough to carry you along, uh, it's all you need. The robot stories, which are all ingenious puzzle stories, don't need pros. They just needed an ingenious idea worked out efficiently. And he was very, very good at doing that. Mm-hmm. The Caves of Steel, the Stars Like Dust, um, needed more character and needed, a, yeah. I think, a little more sophistication. How long since you've read any Foundation? Um, Probably 10 years. And it's interesting because... I think I may have mentioned this before. I, t- I tried teaching Foundation in a class one time, and Foundation is one of those things. When I was reading it as a kid, it blew my mind. I thought, "This is, you know, this uh, this is possible. This is what the future might look like. This is thousands of years, and it spans galaxies, and it's, and there's all this historical stuff going on." And then one of my students pointed out to me, "A, this is really boring, and B, nothing ever happens in the entire trilogy." Yeah. And I, I thought about, well, he's actually absolutely right. I mean, this is a convers. This is a this is a trilogy about conversations that are really stimulating to science fiction geeks who would love to be able to have these conversations with people. Mm-hmm. But the action sequences in the entire, what is it, uh, seven novellas that make that up, uh, are few and far between. Yeah. I think that's true. Gary, we've fallen we've, over the line. We've gone, we've gone over the line and we've... We've, we've hit think, an hour. <sighs> Yeah, right. I'm out of breath. We've spoken of Hopefully next week we'll have a topic. We'll have something. Something will we'll coalesce. Well, with any luck, we'll have one of our many guests who really, really want to talk with us. They do. They all said this. They really are looking forward to this. They are. Except their mom is coming over. Or there's, something. There's, there's lawn to mow, and, like, it's a holiday season. you got to get ready. you got to polish the silver and... Shopping and stuff like that. It takes a while. You know, practice goes at making Yorkshire pudding. You know how it is. Mm-hmm. I know. Baby Presents thing. to buy. Keep anyway. Trying. Okay. Next week, we will chat again. Next week, we'll chat again. We will talk about things science fictional. We may or may not have a guest. We may or may, or may not have recommendations for, for science fictional things to do in your holiday, in your, you know, during your holiday break. Um, mm-hmm. You probably won't. You probably won't. Uh, We're all going to go see The Hobbit at some point. Boxing Day. Ah, Boxing Day. Yes. Doesn't start here till then anyway. Ah, okay. So we'll go on Boxing Day, unless everybody has told us before then it's so bad that we're, we're put off the whole idea and we stay home. Um, it can't be that bad. Yeah, it could be, but it probably won't be. I do, I, 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 do, I do have some hesitation about a book which was written for kids and is much simpler and straight, more straightforward in narrative than the Lord of the Rings being turned into three movies, but I gather they've dredged stuff up out of the Silmarillion and out of the appendices to the Lord of the Rings um, and made an epic out of it. Um, which is probably fine. My main concern, and it'll be, we'll talk about this probably after, you know, sort of late, later oh, in the month or something. My main concern is they're turning the kids' story into a more adult-like, you know, it's going to be more like Lord of the Rings than it was like The Hobbit. Which is unfortunate because I loved the way it was. God help us that Peter Jackson never gets his hand on the wind in the willows. Yeah. Margaret Lanigan wrote a story called Titty Ann and the Very, Very Hairy Man. Oh, really? There you go. On that cheery note, now as always, we remain the Cood Street Podcast. We will talk to you next week, possibly in a more focused way. Yes? Possibly. Okay. Possibly, but not likely. Until then, as always, farewell.